think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 66 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 67th episode. I'm Laura Carboneau. I'm Ethan Renville. And we have a very special guest with us this week, uh, Twitter's favorite tax economist, <laughs> Kevin Milligan. Good evening. How are you? Very good. Thank you for joining us. Genuinely, this is uh, this is really really fun. Uh, when we started the show, we were like, "Oh, let's get our, our profs to come," and then you know we kind of figured that was going to be it for the big fish. But uh, no, yeah, this is really really cool. Uh, I cannot claim to be a big fish, going. but I am happy to be here. <laughs> You're a big fish in the tax economist. Canadian tax economist. Canadian pond. Twitter tax economist. The yeah. three of us are. Uh, I'm, you, got one. <laughs> you know, it's it's a fantastic pond. So. Um, the first thing I want to talk about, and we got literally the perfect news hook for what we wanted to talk about to begin with. Uh, so today, if anyone's watching the House of Commons and the beautiful new digs in West Block, um, the Conservatives had their first opposition day motion of this sitting, uh, which was sponsored by Pierre Poitiev, who is their finance critic. I've often said he's also their trigger the libs critic. Uh, he's very good at that. You won't be wrong. I would not be wrong. Uh, it was entitled, Plan to Eliminate the Deficit. Text of the motion reads as follows. That, given the Prime Minister broke his promise to eliminate the deficit this year and that perpetual and growing deficits lead to massive tax increases, the House call on the Prime Minister to table a plan in Budget 2019 to eliminate the deficit quickly with a written commitment that he will never raise taxes of any kind. So, the Norquist Pledge, uh, transplanted to Canada. Um, so, we want to talk about, so what's the deal with deficits? Are, I, I've often said on the show, <laughs> deficits are not really that big a deal. Etienne's never really disagreed with me all that strongly. Uh, what is the what is the correct take on do deficits matter? The correct take is that I have to caveat it first that we always want to spend public money on good things and not just throw right. it uh, you know from the uh, from from the windows. So you know taking care with public finances is an important thing. But in terms of the deficit itself and how big it is and whether it's a threat or not, it depends on how big the economy is. Depends on interest rates to figure out whether what you are doing is sustainable. And what's interesting is uh, a little known fact that you can have a small deficit and never raise tax rates and it's perfectly sustainable forever. As long as you're growing. Yeah. And it's yeah. very easy to understand why. So over the first term of this term of the Trudeau <laughs> government, I don't know who knows how many they'll have, they're going to add something like uh, $73 billion of debt. Okay. So... Imagine it costs 3% to finance that. So that's 73 billion times 3%, so about 2 billion a year to finance it. Over that four-year term, the GDP of Canada grew by 300 billion. Right. Okay, just because the economy got bigger. The tax revenue on that is about 15% of growth. So you're looking at like 45 billion. 45 billion in new tax revenue. And we, the cost of servicing that extra debt is 3 billion. So there are other things going on there, but you can see as the economy grows, the existing tax rates just capture that ex some of that extra growth. And that allows you to run small deficits because the tax on the extra growth is bigger than the interest on the extra little debt you add on. Now, obviously, if the interest rate is big, that changes things. Sure. If the deficit gets bigger than little, it, it, it changes things. But it's not like we have to get to zero within a short horizon or the world ends. Right. This is sort of like the other side of the coin to sort of the classic conservative argument of cut taxes, grow the, I mean, <laughs> grow the economy and the balance will, or the budget will balance itself, <laughs> um, which is what Justin Trudeau was trying to express in that comment. Um, so, but, but the question is the causal link there, right? As to whether or not the spending the government is doing can cause, or can be attributed, or the growth can be attributed to the, the spending that the government is doing. Yeah, I mean, when you look at, uh, things like deficits, what you're really worried about is the trajectory and where it's going. Are we kind of converging towards, you know, a stable uh, debt situation or are we, economists actually use the word exploding. Do you have an exploding debt situation where it's just going sure. to infinity? And, you know, we, we have analysis of that. The PBO does analysis of that. Others do analysis of it. And the answer is that with small deficits like we're seeing now. It's just, it's not a concern about exploding debt. It doesn't mean that the government's doing an awesome job on fiscal management. It doesn't mean that everything they're spending on needs to be defended. But what makes me do my eye roll emoji <laughs> is when I see people pulling up 1995, 
It's all going to be a big debt crisis, just like 1995 is a crisis. We're going to destroy the future. We have to raise taxes a whole bunch because we have like less 0.7% of GDP deficit. That's just, that's not the risk at all here. I mean, right. thinking back to 1995 as an example, we had 73% debt to GDP ratio. Interest rates were 9% for the long-term debt. We're now, it's like 2.3% on long-term debt and the debt to GDP is like 30%. Yeah. So that difference between 30% and 73% is actually $1 trillion. So if tomorrow Bill Morneau and Justin Trudeau decided to blow a trillion dollars on something, just bury a trillion dollars in the ground and add a trillion dollars to Canada's debt, we would still not be back at 1995 because the interest rate is 2.3% rather than 9%. Right. So you need to bury a trillion dollars and then quadruple the interest rate to be back in the 1995 situation. So you need to screw up pretty bad. So great great credit to you know Paul Martin and Jim Flaherty and, and Stephen Harper and everyone who got us to where we are where that debt to GDP ratio came down a lot. A lot of people did a lot of hard work to get us there, but let's acknowledge that we're there. Yeah. Uh, one thing with that too is um, you mentioned the, the debt to GDP ratio as being kind of the important number there. It's a big part of what liberals talk about when they're talking about their sort of fiscal management is saying, well, you look, you have a, a sort of shrinking debt to GDP ratio or a stable one as the kind of actually important sort of metric. Is that pretty much on the money? I know, I, I know some people who disagree and have, have alternate monetary explanations for, uh, I'm sure you've heard them sure. uh, in, in long emails. Um, but <laughs> yeah, is that pretty much the, like what you would see as, as the kind of the right number to be looking at? It's certainly the right number to think about the sustainability of debt, whether you're going to go and not kind of explode. That's the definition of the exploding path is sure. debt to GDP just starts to explode. And the reason is that the GDP is the size of the economy, how how, how much we can afford. That's the source that we're going to use right. to pay, pay off the interest on debt. Yeah. And so when you think this is an important thing about governments versus households, for households, you know, you have a, a life cycle. You're going to take on some debt when you buy a condo, buy a house, and buy a car when you're younger. You know, pay that off and hopefully save something for retirement. And you, and then you know, you die at whatever yeah. age, and hopefully you with the last dime in your bank account. That's kind yeah. of the goal. Government doesn't work that way. Right. There's no natural life cycle like that. So instead, what we're thinking about is just making sure that it's sustainable. That we don't take on extra debt relative to our ability to pay yeah. for future generations. If we, you know, we're at 30% debt to GDP, we could go to 60% and we wouldn't blow the economy. But the thing would be that future generations have to pay higher interest on that. That's not really fair to future generations. The way I view it is keep that debt to GDP kind of constant. That means you're not putting extra burden on future generations. But there's no, we don't have to push that to zero within our lifetime. That's what households do. That's right. not what governments do. So that's a, a very critical difference between yeah. looking at a household and a, and a government. So that's when people say, you know, oh, every dollar of deficit is an extra whatever that my kids have to pay back. Well, the answer is your kids and your grandkids are going to have a much bigger GDP to draw on right. in the future. And that's why economists tend to focus on that debt to GDP ratio. So one, th I, I made fun of the monetary people earlier, but the other yeah. factor here is that I like, unfortunately, when I go to the Sobeys down the road, they do not accept the Laurent bucks that I print off my home printer. Uh, however, the government of Canada does have a little more leverage there. That's right. So the government is different uh, households one way that I mentioned about the horizon you're talking about, but also they control the currency. And mm -hmm. so you, there's uh, some dimension of trade-off between monetary and fiscal policy to deal with it. But the other thing is they also can tax, yeah. <laughs> which is a big deal um, in terms of versus a household. If I run into problems, I can't tax my way into solving those problems. Whereas a government to some extent, can raise revenue by by uh, yeah. taxing itself. Yeah, the government has a reasonable um, control over its revenue streams and can say, if I want to raise a billion extra dollars, I will raise a billion extra dollars this year by yeah. doing X. Yeah. Um, within a certain margin of error, frankly. Um, but one, so from from the deficit hawk perspective, um, one of the things that comes up time and time again is the cost of service, the debt, and. Whether or not, I mean, there's questions of opportunity cost between spending money now versus and, right, and, the, and the growth and right, the growth yeah. that results versus uh, the cost of service, the debt that we accrue. Um, where do you land on that? If like, obviously, if all of the funding is going towards growth enhancing activities, but not everything is a bridge, right? Not everything is going to dramatically increase growth because it creates tons of different efficiencies. A lot of government spending is not growth enhancing. 
I mean, okay, and I think we should step in there to say that while not all that may be growth enhancing, it is human suffering. Well, yeah, right, which is sure, also an sure, important sure, sure. public policy goal, yes. and I think we shouldn't lose sight of that. Uh, and yes. frankly, like, you know, a lot of public health literature about, you know, if you have a healthy population, then you're going to have, you know, probably a more robust economy over the long term. I know people take issue with Wilkinson and Pickett about this, but I think it's reasonably convincing from both their evidence and you look at successful societies. I think, you know, you can buy it, but not. But to know. back up, all of this is to say, how should we view debt servicing costs um, nationally? I think that's a, a fine, you know, uh, right of center approach to take to that question. Uh, again, it gets back to making sure you do good things with public money. Yeah. And so it's, the danger here is not that, oh, my gosh, 1995 is going to happen again and I'm going to uh, freak out. The real issue here is, you know, the number I came up with of the $70 billion of extra debt that the Trudeau government has put in place, that costs us $2 billion a year forever to, to service. Yeah. That, that's assuming interest rates are what they are now. So that's $2 billion that we could have done something else with. And so the question is, the stuff that they've done, is that worth it to us to pay $2 billion extra a year um, you know, yeah. in, in taxes? And that sounds like a, that's like that's an opportunity cost question. Like, could exactly. someone else have done more with that money? Right? And, and, and that's and, a more reasonable question to me than like, is the number below zero? If yes, then freak out. Yeah. So, I get, you know, the, the, the way you framed it was a good one, which is imagine you thought that what they did didn't change the size of the economy or the path of the economy. It's just shifting some stuff around that paying for it now or later or whatever then, you know, that growth, that extra $300 billion was going to be there anyway, just a question of whether you're taking $2 billion and paying it in interest costs or not. Yeah. Um, the other answer, as uh, uh, Laurent was saying, is that, you know, there's an argument that uh, some of the stuff they've done has, if not direct GDP today, some benefit in the future. I've done research on impact of uh, transfers to lower income families, and uh, there's strong evidence that, you know, uh, mother's depression scores go down, kids' education scores go up. You think about kids with yeah. the extra few hundred dollars a month that they're getting from the Canada Child Benefit. I just get really excited thinking about the, that benefit they're going to have in the future and sure. that we're setting up the next generation to do well. It doesn't pay off in this year's GDP account, but there's an argument for that. But sure. flipping that around to devil's advocate, it's like, yeah, you could have done that, but actually not run up debt to do it. You could have not done other things. You could have raised taxes a bit in order to pay for all that goodness of the Canada sure. Child Benefit. It wasn't necessary to deficit finance it. So there's an argument there. I think that's the right one is the opportunity cost of that interest. Yeah. To I mean, to build on one of your point, your your last point there, I was talking about raising taxes. The liberals have come in on a platform of protecting the middle class and... And those working hard to join. And those working hard to join. And ostensibly being hard on the upper uh, the upper tax brackets and making them quote unquote pay their fair share, um, but we haven't seen the liberals be very ambitious with their taxation approaches. Um, they've normally cut taxes in a few areas. They've trimmed a few tax expenditures around the edges. The GST remains untouched. Um, sort of looking at the big picture, what do you make of their tax policy to date? So. The one thing I would I would uh, uh, gently push back is the in the fall economic update the change to depreciation rules for corporations that was the response to the U.S. corporate tax reform. Right. Mm -hmm. It was like sixteen billion over four years, um, something in that range. Four, 14, 16, yeah. Yeah, it was like in, that. in that range. It's most likely the biggest tax initiative they've done. It was not small, and you know that's there. But setting that aside, you're right. They haven't done a lot of tax uh, initiatives. Um, you know, they have, thinking of taxes and transfers together, you can put together a fairly credible case that using those tools, they have made the tax and transfer system more uh, more redistributive, more progressive, helped out the seniors with the guaranteed income supplement, helped out the kids, changed the EI system uh, a bit. So there have been some changes there that have made it more progressive. Uh, on the, more on the benefit side than the tax side, though, I mean, there was the middle yeah. class tax cut with the higher bracket and, and the small cut in the middle. But thinking about that, some people have been talking about we need to have a big corporate or a big tax commission to re renovate and, and rejuvenate our tax system. And mm -hmm. there's an argument for that. But my response to that is thinking about this government in particular, you know, imagine it's 10 years from now and Mr. Trudeau is sitting down to write his memoirs. Imagine the chapters that are in that. It's like the one on 
what I did to try uh, for, um, you know, with, with, uh, 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 with reconciliation, it might be something on gender uh, balance in, 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 the, uh, in the world. There's not a chapter said, that awesome tax reform that I did. <laughs> that's, that's not a chapter in his memoir. That's just, I don't think that's why he got into uh, politics. politics, was to pull off an awesome tax reform. So you work back from that. I just don't see that this is going to be something that's going to be top shelf yeah. in terms of priorities to get done. They did that. That thing in the fall was non-trivial with the corporate tax changes they made. That was a response to what happened in the U.S. Absent the U.S. tax reform, I don't think yeah. that would have happened. And the last thing that they tried before that was the uh, changes to uh, ooh, what do they call it? Tax not sheltering. Uh, what am I thinking of? The thing been? with the doctors. Oh yeah, uh, small, in, in, small income sprinkling. Sprinkling. Income sprinkling. Well, Thank you. was one of a few different measures. That, yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so that was received. I think to call it poorly is probably fair if mild. Uh, and they backed off on that ultimately. Uh, and but I think the, the, the income sprinkling thing was they, they, they did before with that one. They moved off some of the yeah. capital gains things and some of the. Oh, uh, did they move forward on sprinkling? Oh, for sure. That's oh, that's, okay. that's uh, I I've had tax professionals tell me, boy, uh, now it's much harder to get my clients uh, <laughs> do, do, do dividend sprinkling. This is a horrible thing. And my response to that is kind of like that's actually mission accomplished. If it's, yeah. if it's much harder to do, that's what they were trying to do. Yeah. So that part they did do. There were two other elements of the reform that were pulled back, one entirely and one partially. Okay. So yeah, they, they did tangle with that uh, from the point of view. Uh, listen to how they described it of uh, tax fairness and, and making sure that people who happen to have private corporations don't have access to tax cuts that other people don't. Right. So th that's the lens through which they were advocating for it. Uh, but yeah, it, even that is a few hundred million dollars a year. It wasn't a, well, it did create a lot of, a lot of uh, political issues oh, and a lot of debate over that. Yeah. Oh, there was. <laughs> um, in terms of the magnitude of the economic impact of it, not, not huge. Yeah. yeah I, in terms of talking about tax changes like this and, and the amount of heat that came from that, um, because it polarized a very concentrated constituency with a reasonable amount of political capital. Yes, and, um, and capital capital for that matter. And, and, yeah. and <laughs> capital capital. How, how do you think that compares to something like changing one point in the GST, which is pegged at raising $7 billion in revenue for, for doing a percentage point? I've always read about GST changes. And I remember when the initial GST changes came in and I was you know, fairly young at the time, uh, but thinking like, oh, this is trivial. I've always been sort of amazed by how, like, how regarded the GST changes are, how much people seem to predict that the general population would be opposed to a 1% uh, tax increase in GST and how much the population rejoiced at a one to two point cut of the GST. Um, where where do you sort of land on that? Well, uh, it's funny when you talk about the original changes coming in. I was thinking you were around in 1991. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, you met you met the the Flaherty changes. Oh, sorry, yeah, yes, yeah. The, the Flaherty ones. I, I actually worked for the uh, not uh, not for, for the Canada Customs and Revenue Agency as a summer student back in 92 93 um, in the Kingston District Office, and it was like a it wasn't even the internet then. It was like a a, a database that was on a hard drive of various questions you could ask. And I'm, I, 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 I'm not making this up. There's an item in there for edible underwear. Because it's food, right? Should it be exempt or not? So there, there were tax professionals here in Ottawa who had to figure out whether edible underwear was a food product or, or another product. So yeah, this is, uh, these are the fun things about tax policy. Um, <laughs> edible underwear, food or not. Um, so yeah, uh, the, the 0506 changes, I mean, I kind of put that back in terms of the politics of it and thinking about how the tax policy and the politics interact. When you talk to you know, uh, uh, conservative backroom people from uh, who uh, you know, know the federal party well about the 04 campaign, they'll say we we had these big tax cuts in there, an income tax side, and we don't feel like we got any bang at bang for it. So in 06, we wanted something that was very visible that people would know every day, they spend on it every day, and that's why they went for the yeah. GST cuts. So that's the story. I'm sure you've heard similar kinds of things. Um, and I think that's not wrong in terms of the politics of it. Uh, it seems likely to be true that people pay a lot more attention to visible things than things that are less visible. Um, and so, you know, <clears throat> that goes there in the same way if you were to put the GST up by a point or two, again, be very visible. Yeah, really um, it. People would notice it. But Atlanta, Atlanta one, sorry. It's one point, though. This, this is like, if you were to do one point, you raise $7 billion, your, a lot of the liberals' debt and deficit issues go away. 
Three, okay, so, two or four words, depending on how you count them. Manitoba NDP, <laughs> right? Like when they raised their, uh, was it HST or PST for them? I think it was PST still, yeah. Uh, they, I mean, it was the end of the world for them. Like they just, they, they ate shit for the next three years of the government and ended up just crashing and burning. I mean, granted, they had been around a long time and had other issues, but that I think really was the surprise increase in PST for them was just the final nail in the coffin that really just sealed their doom. Granted, the Saskatchewan Party government a couple years ago also raised their PSD a point. No one really seemed to care, but of course, different rules apply. Yeah, see, this. So, my, my position, uh, to be clear, isn't advocating one way or the other necessarily. It's just my sort of bafflement at how much of a forbidden fruit um, <laughs> one point in the GST appears to be. The most succulent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But some of the Atlantic provinces have moved up their HST uh, point, uh, point or two. I mean, Newfoundland and Labrador yeah, really, really not, not just HST, but the income taxes. Man, a huge increase yeah, uh, yeah. over the past few years. And I, I haven't followed Newfoundland and Labrador or polling, but I haven't seen any revolutions there. Yeah. Um, it seems like context matters a lot for, the, for this. I think you're right that there would be a, a lot of pearl clutching if there were to be an, a, a, a GST raise of a point or something. It's not going to destroy the economy or anything. And certainly opposition parties would make hay about it. But, um, you know, one could do that. But an important thing, um, just pull out my numbers here. Projection as of the fall economic update for the deficit as of 23-24, so five years from now, four years from now, is at 8.4 billion. So one, one, one point of GST would get you to deficit yeah. zero yeah. and that horizon. Um, so yeah. it's actually, we're not that far away. Question is, you know, whether that's worth doing in terms of yeah. uh, the economics, the politics. Well, a big place, a place that this has been a really like, I think like hair pulling kind of issue uh, is Alberta. Where their deficits are, you know, they're they're not tiny, but they're they're reasonably modest, and that they could basically cover them with a PST equivalent to Saskatchewan's, which is at well, actually, equivalent to Saskatchewan's before uh, Brad Wall raised it on his way out. So at five percent, they would be like, fine, they'd be laughing right now. I mean, obviously they have structural challenges in their economy, but like deficit-wise, that would be, they'd be golden. It's, uh, you know, that would certainly solve their problem. It depends on how much you think uh, their revenue problem is one that's going to be what it's going to look like three years from now, five right. years from now. Uh, I don't care to project too much, <laughs> but uh, it is uh, that would be something that would solve their problem. But more in in terms of the short run of closing that deficit gap. But more importantly, looking over the next 20 years, you, you have health costs in provinces mm -hmm. almost surely to be going up as the elderly population share goes up. Yeah. Especially and in Atlanta, Canada. Atlanta, Canada specifically, yeah. you know, look at New Brunswick or Nova Scotia. They have the highest tax rates across the board on every category you look at. And they have these the populations are almost an absolute decline. And the elderly share is going up. Uh, I, this is going to be something that's going to confront those governments very shortly in yeah. the next uh, decade. I mean, the, the other factor to this, along with all the demographic factors, and, and this is uh, always worth mentioning in these contexts, is about how medicine is becoming more expensive for not necessarily the reasons that first come to mind, but because... <laughs> Just immediately. <laughs> <laughs> immediately <laughs> points over. <laughs> because of your little snicker. Um, but because we're getting more targeted medicine, personnalized, more complex medicine. Well, biologics. That, but yeah, yeah, like all, all of these different categories are developing and testing and everything is becoming more expensive. And so mm -hmm. I think it's the Bank of Canada and others have long been trying to reconcile... Um, what you do with healthcare spending in Canada as it becomes increasingly unsustainable over the long yeah. run. Do you cut services? Do you start putting limitations? Do you raise more revenue to pay for it? Like there's there's you yes. know, a, a bunch of different policy levers to play with there. Yeah. Yeah. I, beyond the, the medicine and the pharmaceutical side of it, just the regular doctors and nurses costs of running hospitals is going to be going up uh, as, as pay increases with the economy mm -hmm. in the future. Well, and population the, aging too is, yeah. Big well, that's the big thing yeah. is uh, the share of population over age 75 is really starting to spike in the 2020s. And that's who uses health services most intensively. So even if medicine stays the same, even if the cost of doctors and nurses stays the same relative to the economy, we're just going to need more of them or figure out a way that, to... Uh, yeah. to uh, Give them uh, like cyber arms to yeah, like, yeah. more <laughs> Octopus doctor. Do doctor they're, they're, literally they're doctor. Octopus. <laughs> yes. there we, go. There's a, we have solved Canada's fiscal problems. But what, what's interesting is that the fact that we've so decentralized health spending in Canada mm -hmm. 
is just very unique around OECD countries. And so we look over like the 40 and 50 year projections from the PBO or elsewhere. What you see is the federal government not exploding, in fact, going to debt equals zero, not deficit, but debt yeah. zero by like 2050 or 60. But provinces, they're the ones that yeah. are exploding because of these pressures. So we're going to be back. People roll their eyes sometimes about fiscal imbalance stuff, but that's that, that, that is the world we live in and yeah. that the spending is in the provinces and the tax raising power is for a large part in Ottawa. So, I mean, let me, let me give Which one of my... Which is why we do equalization. One of yeah. my conservative plugs here. Um, as, as I understand it, that was one of the philosophies behind a lot of the cuts that Harper did was the idea to give the provinces the, the tax base to raise it themselves so that there didn't have to be the same equalization. They could uh, increase the tax burden on their... Uh, citizens because the federal government didn't necessarily need it as much as the provinces did. Yeah, I, I, my memory is not perfect here, but I believe at least one of the Atlantic provinces took up that space and uh, you know grabbed a point or two out of the, the Harper-Flaherty uh, yeah. uh, tax cut, which I think uh, uh, is not a bad way to do things in terms of financing provincial health spending uh, on their own HST, their own PST. I, I, I think there's a role for equalization there as well. I'm not putting those up against each other. But when we think about the big cost it's going to have, I think raising in provinces is not a bad way to go rather than raising it all in Ottawa and, and shipping it yeah. out. So I think there's a, a good argument for that. And, it, you know, it, part of that just comes down to local control over what people can see. We, ha You know, if our provincial government is like building too many hospitals or wasteful hospitals, it's hard to run that out of Ottawa. You want sure. your local politicians to have their eyes on that and change the government or whatever you need to do. Yeah. And, and so, you know, having that provincial level control on the spending and the revenue side doesn't seem yeah. like a crazy thing to me. That said, equalization is really important when you have these big imbalances in population structure, in the Atlantic provinces, allowing them to, you, you can raise the HSC to 20 points if you like, is not going to be enough for them. Yeah, no, they need like, well, especially because like, they, as you say, their population is basically decreasing in absolute terms almost. Um, and especially because this was a big point of contention in the sort of like health accord negotiations was funding yeah. per capita versus funding weighted by yeah, age yeah. of the population, right? And the Atlantic provinces were like, yeah, we need that extra money <laughs> for all of our old people, which yeah. fair enough. I mean, I don't think we is. will be escaping future federal, provincial, territorial uh, uh, fiscal conferences trying to figure out ways to do this. Yeah. Is, this, this is the future that we will live in. Yes. Um, fun. We love yeah, fun. Yeah, I can't wait for it. Yeah, it'll be super, super good. It'll be like the 80s all over again. Just everyone coming to Ottawa all the time to just talk about the most fun things imaginable. Tax point transfers. <laughs> yes. Woo! Uh, or the early 90s, I suppose. I mean, this is, I mean, you mentioned the wasteful hospital saying that was like this NDP government in 91 that took over in Saskatchewan is like, uh, we have more hospitals in Ontario with a... <laughs> like a tenth of the population this seems to be a problem and, and ralph klein blew up a few and there was an expensive <laughs> one uh, in uh in in halifax that was built that people were grumbly about so you know this this happens yeah. i just think that's the exact kind of thing why it's not bad to have local, local control over it yeah, because for sure. i don't i don't know which hospital was poorly designed in halifax but the local voters have a good a good eyeball on that so to circle back around to deficits i just want to like I've, I get a little frustrated with deficits because it seems like basically everyone I talk to, including, you know, Tien, who... This is where we turn to MMT, isn't it? No, it's not. Uh, <laughs> is that, like, everyone seems to basically, who, who, like, has thought about it, gets how this works, right? And it's like, deficits, whatever, you know, they're, they're not the be-all, end-all. But then you look at, like, stuff like this motion today that goes through and it's like deficits are you know scourge on the earth and they will they will destroy you and your family like the ms-13 of of the of <laughs> the fiscal world and it's just like what is going on there like why and like politically i get it it's easy and like i i understand why they do this it's cheap it's it's cheap carbs right like i, I totally understand politically why it makes sense for the conservatives to insist that deficits are the the biggest problem etc I don't un understand why everyone kind of has to humor them about this. Because it seems that people do. And I've never really understood why that is. I mean, the NDP famously ran on a, a balanced budget campaign in 2015, which really, frankly, crippled them because they had a fiscal, a three-legged fiscal stool that made no sense because it was, let's have big new programs, no new taxes, and no deficits. It's like, okay, well, I see some problems here. Uh, unless you're going to 
you know, magic the money into existence or print it, I suppose, would also work. But it would not told, not have been convincing to people. I told you we were going to it go would not have, It would not have been convincing to people. Um, so what, like, I don't understand how they've just gotten away with this for so long. It's, it's really mind-blowing. So I, I think two things. First is, you know, that natural relationship to household finance people just find very intuitive yeah i can't overspend my income or else i have to pay for it but um, we are the most indebted like western country <laughs> yeah yes yeah, yeah, yeah actually have no problem with this <laughs> yeah well perhaps they see in their own life they're, they're stressed out about their own personal debt level yeah, they don't want enough. that at the fiscal <laughs> level as well um so that's part of it. i think that argument is very intuitive to people even if it, it is as i've suggested perhaps misleading to apply it to the government but the other thing i think is really important is it's a generational thing i was there in the 90s, I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer. The Gen Xers and boomers who saw what went on in the 90s, it was fiscally very painful. Taxes are going up. We had literally almost a quarter, literally almost. We were getting close to a quarter of the federal tax dollar going for interest servicing. Yeah. And that, so you're paying more and more taxes. You're not getting, and you're getting fewer services. That just is not a good deal. People, and so we remember that. And that wasn't great. The economy kind of stank when I, my cohort was graduating in 1995. There weren't a lot of jobs. The public service wasn't hiring at all. Universities were not hiring at all. Um, it was just not a great decade uh, to be in, in Canada then. So that we remember that. The baby boomers also remember that. So there's certainly a scarring issue. That's why you always see people raise, but 1995, we can't possibly run a deficit. The boomers do that all the time. Yeah. I just see that there is a generational change here that people who do not have that experience just look around and say, yeah, but interest rates are 2% now. They yeah. were like well, 9% they were real then. negative like a couple years yeah, ago. It just, we have yeah. a different, we have some big, big issues on our plate in 2019 and you could list what they are. And it seems like focusing on that one just seems perhaps farther down the list to younger generations who are interested in the climate change and, and uh, reconciliation and lots of other things just seem like maybe we should address those things and not sweat the deficit as much as other people were. So I think there's a, a generational change there. And you, I, you see that in the U.S. over the past few days with uh, Howard Schultz. Howard the, Schultz. The Starbucks, Starbucks guy. Starbucks guy, yeah. yeah. I mean, he's, he's out there giving the, the, the old 1990s consensus, well, you know, I'm going to uh, focus on the federal debt and get that down. That's the biggest problem we have in society. And I'm a centrist. It's like, you know, I... I, I that's, I'm not sure that's where the center is anymore. You're to the right of Donald Trump. You're to the right of Paul Ryan as manifested in the policy. That <laughs> and, Congratulations to not falling into the Paul Ryan trap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I just see that uh, attitudes have changed. Not just attitudes. Not Sometimes boomers will then say, oh, young man, you just don't know how bad it was in the 90s. And yeah. my answer is... this is the 70s, they say the same thing. Yeah, yeah. The world has changed. We have... Lots of important issues to address. And it's just like obsessing over that one, which is, you know, not going to destroy the world. Maybe we should focus on the ones that might destroy the world. Yeah. That's pretty reasonable when you put it that way. Um, so is that like this is, you know, we were talking earlier about punditry and speculation. It seems like that's going to be a problem for conservatives, like kind of in the medium to long term is like, are you going to be able to continue selling people on like deficit mania? And I think... As you point out, I think it's going to be... I, I, a lot of like, young people do believe this. Uh, like, most people do not really pay very close attention to politics. So it's, like, sort of stuff that gets packaged as, like, common sense. Like, people just absorb. And we were talking earlier also, and we briefly touched on the U.S. and, and the kind of, like, interesting political movement going on there. Like, there was uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the new congresswoman from New York, um, recently proposed a 70% tax on income over $10 million, which people interpreted to mean a 70% tax on people who make over $10 million, which is not the same thing, right? Like people don't, a lot of people seem to misunderstand how marginal tax rates work. And Etienne was saying that he was taught at several points in his life. That, oh, oh, for sure. Yeah, that it worked the way people misunderstand. I remember being in comm class for those not raised in Alberta. It's career and life management where they teach you. Well, the, geez, no the, wonder the, your province is so Very calm. Where they teach you the essentials as to uh, how many fire alarms or fire detectors should be in your house and how marginal tax rates work. And I remember very distinctly. Uh, the teacher telling me about people who work out at site um, and didn't take extra overtime shifts because they'd calculate that it would bump their pay into the next bracket and then they'd lose money. Um, but that is quite obviously wrong. But it's a very pervasive myth. Um, I, I, have you ever seen any public polling 
that I'm were really, like what would be fascinating to see like what percent of people believe that it would be you know give some examples and do a multiple yeah, choice which test one of these right. is how taxes work yeah, yeah. I, my suspicion is it's, it's pretty hard to understand for a lot of people I mean you know when you change a rate over top of a threshold it doesn't change anything underneath it yeah so you know the the AOC uh, proposal for 70% marginal tax rate over $10 million, there's literally nothing to anyone under $10 million, yeah. which is not a lot of us. Yeah, uh, it's, it's uh, much like the U.S. estate tax, right? Which yeah, gets hit yeah. the same kind of thing, which only applies to estates over $5 million and people, death tax, etc. Right. But we, we, we do see, the we, we saw the same thing getting back to the private corporation tax reform uh, right. uh, brouhaha of 2017. I remember the conservative finance critic was quoting a certain tax rate it would be applied to all these small businesses. When I looked at it, I was like, where's that number coming from? I backed it out. You had to be an Ontario high bracket taxpayer with like hundreds of thousands of dollars of income in order to even get close to the tax rate that he was quoting. You know, so you see that in Canada as well, where uh, I, when you talk about taxing the rich more, that rate can then be, we don't want to ta- uh, tax all small business people at these high rates. So therefore we should not make any changes. So you see that all over the place, but it's important that when we're talking about taxing high earners, it's only over the threshold where your taxes are changed. Everything under the threshold stays stays the same. Okay, yeah, no, I mean, it, it just blows my mind that people kind of, like, I know, yeah, media is media, whatever, but like, it just blows my mind that things like, you know, motion to get rid of deficits forever is not accompanied by like, yeah, most people actually agree that this is not really that big a deal. So who knows? But I think it's kind of that both sides tendency that you have to just sort of report it. But that no one really gives the NDP that kind of credit or like anyone. <laughs> no, but even like anyone, not even just the NDP, actually the liberals, when people like when the liberals announced that they were planning on running deficits, it was like, Kind of the uh, like Trudeau signs on a suicide note. Yeah, there's. Right? A, I think it was the Winnipeg Sun had a yeah, yes, of course. saying uh, it's all over for right, Mr. Right, Trudeau right. or something. Yeah, and that's like it's just there is no credence given to like that point but of view I, that like it's not a huge I, deal. I think there are a lot of things that are considered as political third rails that just are not. I mean, right. What we've seen in the U.S. is a lot of things people thought were norms and things you, you can't go, you can go there. Yeah, and and so that's. U.S. a bad example of my point of view of some things that have entered the political sphere. But I think in general, I think that uh, people are a lot more open to different things in 2019. Uh, um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of things that are considered by the powers that be the, the regular uh, commentary class to be, you know, a third rail that can't be touched. But you know what? You could just do it and see what happens. Yeah, that's that's pretty fair. Um, I that, think that, that, links that covers nicely, our tax, tax myths and deficits. You have a... That links nicely back to my question about GST being the forbidden fruit of <laughs> Canadian taxation policy. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we don't, like, I think a lot of people, actually after the um, the U.S. tax cut, which I saw an article the other day that, like, it had no real stimulatory, stimulative? Stimulative impact at all, basically, which, you know, once again, people on the left have been screaming this for years, that trickle-down is not really a thing. But like what happened was then that the the sort of Canadian business community turned around and said, well, where's our tax cut, right? And then it's like you basically have a race to the bottom, and the only people who win are people with you know a lot of money to begin with, and that's a big problem. And you know when you have an ND, if you're talking like an NDP federal government saying, you know, if you look at for instance Guy Calhoun's leadership platform, which was like, what, what was it? So it was, uh, a, I think they had a wealth tax. They certainly had an estate tax, uh, financial activities tax, which I still don't quite understand a financial transactions tax and i think changes to income tax brackets uh as well as carbon tax and it was like those are all things that you know you can debate the merits of uh i personally think a lot of them are reasonable i disagree with some um but like that just like from a political economic perspective like you would have so much like howling and screaming from the business community because they would look at the u.s and say well look at their tax rate right and it's like that is i think the degree to which our policy horizons are defined by what is happening in the U.S. is really an underexamined Canadian political phenomenon. I think it's because we like to think ourselves as an independent country that can make our own decisions, but in reality, we like live in their attic, and it is what it is. I, I think thinking about what's going on in the U.S. right now and watching the early stages of the Democratic primary for the presidential nomination, I think, imagine a world where 2000. January 2021, you had a Democrat in the White House. Both houses 
but the Senate yeah. and the House are in Democratic hands, which uh, a wave could do. Um, all with a pretty left wing mandate. Think, think <laughs> where they're doing a wealth tax, they're doing a higher marginal tax rate, they're changing the estate tax back to what it was. That's that is going to change the policy environment yeah. here. We just had a couple of years of, of a lot of people telling us that we have to match the U.S. Yeah, exactly. Point point. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, that would be an interesting. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, which it, 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 I don't care to put a percentage on it, but it's not zero that that happens. Uh, yeah. And and but the U.S. policy debate on the Democratic side has moved substantially to the left. Yeah. And I think that's which uh, if you're the NDP is great because you're like, hey, look at all this room that just opened up. Well, and people uh, well, take it more seriously when it comes from the U.S. too, for you know that classic. Indian sure, sure. I think that's right, but I, I, we'll see if that adjusts any party's policy here yes. in Canada. But that is, <laughs> I think we haven't started to figure that out yet. It's only a couple years away now, and yeah. I think it is going to have a big impact here in the discussions. Yeah. Uh, the other thing we wanted to discuss, I think, actually, you currently live in uh, some of the hottest real estate in Canada, not just because of. The Vancouver region's completely overinflated housing market, but also because you live in Burnaby South. Uh, recently was Kennedy Stewart's writing, uh, who is now mayor of Vancouver. Before we segue into that, actually, is it weird that the guy who represented Burnaby ran to be Vancouver's mayor? Or is that like well, he, he's lived there for a number of years, apparently. So okay. uh, <laughs> I guess that's weird. I'm actually, you know, I, I, a, a good thing about Jagmeet Singh is at least he lives there. Yes. <laughs> now. Yes. A recent arrival, but, you know, many people are. Well, so. uh, it would be an improvement over what we've had over the last few years uh, in terms of resident, uh, having an MPU as resident. Um, yeah, so it was a bit weird. Uh, I, I won't go further on that. But, um, uh, yeah, I lived there. I uh, lived there for since 2010, so I, I, I know the area as well as someone who's lived there for nine years. A um, couple things that people ought to know about it. Uh, it's a very immigrant-intensive riding. Uh, like over half of the population is foreign-born. So that's a, an important uh, element of it. First, first generation foreign born. That's right. Yeah, that, that's incredibly yeah. high. My my kid's school uh, is you know it's uh, I, very very obvious that that's the case in terms of the, the mix of the school and it, it makes it a very different riding than other places in Canada perhaps for that reason. It's, it's a middle class suburban riding. Um, thinking it through, it, name other middle class suburban ridings that the NDP holds across the country. Not, not, not a, a lot. Long list. You can talk about uh, uh, Finn Donnelly. You can talk yeah. about uh, Peter Julian. Yeah, they're all in pretty that, much that 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 yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, Those are all neighboring ridings. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Toronto, Montreal. Mon Montreal, I don't yeah, know. Maybe. A couple, yeah. But uh, what's really interesting is to think that this is actually pretty different from the, you know... Uh, it's prototypical NDP riding. Yeah, yeah. so, you know... W w w We'll see how, how they do there, but it is a bit different that way in terms of the mix of policies that might be appropriate for trying to yeah. win this riding. So we all middle class riding. I mean, there is it's also a, a big immigrant portal, not just, you know, uh, more established immigrant groups. But we have uh, a lot of Syrian refugees who've, who've come. There's a lot of low income housing around the metro town area. And that's been a big issue in the local politics of, you know, tearing down um, uh, low income housing, putting up luxury condos. That's been a big political issue at the local level and the provincial level as well. And, uh, you know, so there is low-income housing in the riding. There are some more Tony areas in the riding, but it's for the large part, just a lot of homeowning middle-class uh, Canadians like you'd see in other, you know, suburbs around. Um, the other thing I'll point out that people miss sometimes about BC politics in general and Burnaby specifically is the, the pipeline issue. Right. So it, the terminus of the pipeline is actually in the Burnaby North Seymour riding. Right, which is but, Terry Beach. Terry Beach, yes. Really but I can literally see Burnaby Mountain from my house. So it's not that far far away. Uh, it's not quite seeing Russia from my house, but uh, <laughs> I see Burnaby <laughs> Mountain from my house. From your house yeah. Um, important thing about this is I hear sometimes commentators from this side of the Rockies like, oh, uh, it's all it's a referendum on the pipeline. It's like, that's not at all true. There are certainly environmentalists in the riding and perhaps a bigger share than you might find somewhere else, but it's it's a pretty regular well, middle-class Canadian riding where people care about yeah. crime and housing and taxes and income and jobs more than, you know, the pipeline off in North Burnaby. Yeah. There are people who care intensely about it, like there are in other places, but it's not like there are, you know, when, when things get really intense locally, you see everyone have signs on the lawn, no pipeline or something like that. Sure. Never seen one in South Burnaby. Mm -hmm. So it's just not an intense uh, issue that has gripped the riding. The other thing I point out beyond Burnaby and looking at BC in general, I mean, 
the idea that this was this is going to burn the federal liberals uh, uh, by being pro pipeline. Look at the ridings they won versus the ones other parties hold now. I mean, like, oh boy, the federal liberals must be really concerned they're going to lose every Vancouver Island seat they hold if they build a pipeline. Like newsflash, right, they, they, yeah. they, they they won Kelowna, they won Mission, they won these places that are. Yeah, you know, central. They, they, or... I mean, they did win some in downtown Vancouver that I think probably will be more difficult for them to win this time. There are certainly a few that are yeah. going to be in play. Perhaps that would be one of the issues there. But you could arguably say there are more in play on the other side. I mean, that's how Christy Clark won the 2013 election was. Yeah. You know, the, the Kinder Surprise and that whole episode, uh, she was pro-resource and the NDP was not. And that flipped like a 20-point advantage in the space of a few weeks. Yeah. So... In BC in general, you know, uh, being uh, uh, pro-pipeline is not electoral suicide, as some have suggested. No. Um, you know. Yeah. Though, I mean, it, I think, like, in the places where being super pro-pipeline is a thing, those are more likely to be conservative seats to begin with. Yeah. The Liberals, I, I, you're right, they did win Kelowna. I think Kelowna is probably not one they're going to win again, right? I think that was the one Jerry Butts, when he saw that, was like, oh, okay, we're like we're winning a lot. I remember hearing that at some point. So, Kelowna, that's, Jerry, that's pretty late That's pretty late in the day. It was, actually. But, like, Jerry, if you listen and I'm wrong, let me know, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's like, I think, like, legitimately, like, the downtown, Van- the, the Vancouver Quadras, Vancouver Granvilles of the world are, like, more competitive and they're not going to have that kind of same wave turnout they did last time there's also a reasonable concentration of cabinet ministers yes well that's um, what i was going to say it's like you've got your yeah. jody's wilson raybould and oh, Harjit Sajan. Sajan. john, john wilkinson. wilkinson now yeah. Yeah. yeah but the other thing i point out that people sometimes miss is conservatives are not at all out of the game in 2015 it was a close yeah, very close yeah but the conservative candidate in 2015 was a senate staffer from ottawa she had no tie to the riding she didn't run a terribly vigorous campaign, and they still got mid twenties. That's good. kind of the floor yeah. for conservative. That's not bad as a floor goes. Yeah, I mean the, fed- the NDP federal NDP would kill for a twenty five percent floor. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean it, the Liberals in two thousand eleven were at like ten percent in, in 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 Burnaby South. So what's now Burnaby South? Or- yeah. The main writing that was overlapping. Redistribution, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, conservatives are definitely in the game. In the, in the local sign war, you know, uh, uh, Jagmeet Singh is winning the sign war so far that I've seen. But uh, the conservative candidate, uh, Jay Shin, is doing well on the signs. Um, yeah. And I, I fully expect him to be at least high 20s, if not into the 30s. Yeah. Uh, just that's and that, not just a 2015 or 2011 result. You go back 20 years. It was a really three-way race for a bunch of times back in the 2000s and the 1990s. It's really yeah, a competitive Yeah, the Reform Alliance like, did quite well there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, so my prediction in this race comes not so much from the historical trends of the riding, but just the fact that it's a by-election. Yeah. Um, for me, by-elections are all about turnout. The Motivation. turnout is often abysmally low. We're talking in the 5 to 15% range. Um, which means that the party whose supporters are most motivated will carry the day as so long as they're within, you know, uh, shooting range of the target. Um, so as the NDP currently hold the riding and they have the most to lose and gain, as the case may be, um, I, I think it's almost a no-brainer that I would expect Jagmeet to carry this. I don't expect the Liberals will be incredibly... Um, you know, turned on well, okay. out, out in the streets. It's not to mention the, like, huge own goal they had. Well, of, of course. Their own candidate. But, but only exacerbates it. Yes. I don't know if we've talked about... Uh, remind me what her Karen name Karen Wang. Karen Wang. I don't think we have, no. And her infamous uh, library parking lot scrum oh. where the librarian <laughs> was trying to push <laughs> her to out of the parking lot. It was very thick of it. Oh, no. It was so, I, I, so I, painful. Should I ever have to make a painful press conference, I will not bring my crying mother. I mean, <laughs> that, oh, was, no. that, was, that was really sad to see her yeah. poor mother crying. I mean, that, that brought a tear to my eye out of sympathy. It was like, don't do that to your mother, please. No, absolutely. <laughs> it was just such a slow motion train wreck. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of conspiracy theories that surrounded it. I think they can all very easy, easily I, be dismissed. There was a much easier path to the Liberals exactly. losing, which was not to run a candidate. Yes. Uh, that that seemed much more likely than planting a... a than a, running, a, running a candidate and then having her make racist remarks on a Chinese social media platform that may or may not be picked up by the press to then... That would, that would be quite a, quite, a, quite a plan. So this is like part of a, a broader 
thing that I, I've had about the liberals for the last couple of years is whenever they do stuff, I, I for a long time I assumed it was deliberate that they were the chess masters. But then after like I don't know year three, <laughs> I was like, no, they just fuck up a lot. If you look at how candidates are vetted in any of the parties, and you remember Piss Cup guy, oh, well, that's where <laughs> I was going. <laughs> and you have you know every single year. Or Sorry, not every single mode. year. <laughs> every single election cycle, the number of candidates being disqualified for like very easy to find social media posts that require looking back a few years yeah. is but extraordinary. You, but you guys as political staffers, I've always been curious to ask a political staffer this question and being on Boys and Short Pants, now is my chance. <laughs> sure, go, go ahead. ahead. Why the hell don't candidates just get mandated to clear your social media accounts? That's account? a great question. I mean, I would. I, I I clean my Twitter. I don't have. You can't find my tweets from five years ago just because, because 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 it's Twitter. Yeah. Um, and smart. <laughs> if I'm doing that, and I'm just some guy. Why would on earth would you keep your tweets from five years ago where you're making off color jokes or something? So why would you keep them? I think is a question easy to answer, and it's just it's, it's vanity and default, not thinking yeah. that there's like all my opinions are good. I don't see. I don't know what to complain yeah. about. Why parties don't mandate it? Genuinely, um, like I don't know. Right. I I think. Probably they, they should. Uh, Delete the tweets. I, I think it would be wise. And I think especially because, like, you just don't have the resources to vet 338 writings. Like, you've got other stuff to do. Like, party staffs are not very big. You could have the writing associations do it. But once again, you're offloading a lot of work to volunteers. You don't know how thorough it's going to be. Seems like the thing to... And also, like, literally what they're having you do in a lot of cases when you're filling out your candidate questionnaire is, like, give us your... Tell us about all your accounts... Like, basically everything short of give us your password, right? And it's it's very, very thorough. But I don't know why they don't just go the next step there and say, like, maybe consider just clearing it, you know? Like, and, and if I can jump in on that, um, <laughs> wait till the election this fall when we have the People's Party. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's that's going to be, be, really be a cornucopia good. of, of yes. betting fails. Um, yeah. Man, oh, man. Uh, yeah. Uh, so they're running a candidate in Burnaby South. And she was and polling at like there, there was a poll that hit yeah. them at 10%, which... Although writing level polls for by-elections, you look at the cross tabs on that. It was like Mandarin speakers and young people were the biggest sources for her, and perhaps she's I getting kind of see that actually the the yeah. the, uh, the the, the, the uh, hardcore Christian for the anti-immigrant party. Maybe the Mandarin speakers really love that stuff, but maybe not. I don't yeah, know. Tough to say. <laughs> it, it will. You're right. It'll she be. She was also a school board candidate who ran on a very social conservative. Right. Yeah. I think that might yeah. be more the the appeal there. It'll, It'll yeah, be yeah. a very interesting... Well, okay. So what, what they say, the, the general rule of thumb that you'll hear spread about Ottawa is that, you know, quote-unquote star candidates um, bring somewhere in the range of 5% to, to, to any election. Um, if you have the People's Party polling at around 1% nationally, to have her... Was it 7 or 9%? It was like 9 I think. It was pretty high. To yeah, have her as high percent. as 9% is a substantial deviation from the norm. Yeah. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see if that carries. Um, but even if it doesn't, the I mean, I guess it won't necessarily be conclusive because, again, going back to by-elections are about turnout, it's not likely that the People's Party uh, voters will be polarized to turn out for their, you know, their fringe candidate. The, the, the other aspect of that, the crosstabs, was the young, the, the best in the young demographic. That actually surprises me a lot less. But, but, but that, that, exactly. I yeah. was thinking about it. You look at the pictures of Mr. Bernier around yeah. with his EDAs around the country. It's all these it's 21, year, exactly, yeah. 21 year old libertarian sweaty palm fanboys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're, they're you know, yeah. we're going to free the milk. And, and, yeah. and, and, yeah. and they got the Pepe on their Twitter. And they yeah. got all. He knows. The, he knows. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there is a fan base out there, and it's yeah. young, it's male, yeah. and uh, and and they're there. So perhaps there's something to that poll, but uh, you know, uh, uh, one district polling, who knows uh, what was going on? Yeah, yeah, it's it's almost a case of, you know, I mean, if the turnout uh, substantiates the poll, I, I mean, we can we can praise. I think it's a Main Street poll, I was, yeah, if yeah. I recall. They seem to be the only ones doing this sort of riding level polling lately. Um, but it, but if it's wrong. It'll be turnout based, and we'll we'll never know for sure whether or not that was an accurate reflection of the status quo. Let until me, until the federal. <laughs> let, let me flip for a minute to the other by election in the province, which is uh, provincial by election in Nanaimo, yeah. which is uh, it's Tuesday now. Tomorrow's Wednesday when the by election is. I'm not sure oh, when is this that tomorrow. It's tomorrow, oh, man. Shit, I didn't realize that. Soon. This is I. Uh, 
there's a Main Street poll that has the BC Liberals ahead, which would it's complicated, but more or less tie the legislature. And you get into all the procedural nerds who are boys in short pants fans. Uh, you, you're going to have a lot of fun. <laughs> I mean, there's a whole thing about uh, committee of the whole and getting legislation through that, you know, makes yeah. the procedural nerds will well, really and enjoy. This is, with, and this is with that, just the incredible slow moving wood splitter gate. <laughs> all, all going on, on at rolling. the same time. I know. It's genuinely it's, like BC is the place to be it, right if now. If you put that... Uh, that whole mix, if it got to a Thai legislature with that going on and the speaker being someone who generates controversy on his own, yeah. uh, man, it's, 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 it's quite no, a, it quite a cauldron and, uh, quite yeah. surprising how the NDP is doing there considering. To, wait, 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 let's, let's slow down though, because in, in referencing that main street poll for Nanaimo, it's worth also mentioning the amount of flack that it's received. Yeah. Has it received a lot of flack? Yes. Oh, okay, cool. Well, for waiting... Spill that tea. The, the 21 to 30 category, oh, okay. incredibly heavily based on 20 respondents, yeah, yeah. a margin of error, something in the range of 22% based on Though, some of the numbers that they were using. I will say I will say that, about, I did see that, but I think what surprised me about that is that it skewed it even further in the direction that you would not expect. Right, like I think it would. It's a seat the NDP won by fourteen points in the last provincial election. It's a seat the NDP hold federally, and the federal MP uh, who's resigned is running, and they're like not winning. Which is why the question of skewing but if here is overweighting the young that and like if the young skew NDP versus the the writer wing like you'd expect but, that to go the other but, direction but the problem is if it's a sample of only 20 people yes, your, your your margin for error there is huge so, we so will see your what skew isn't necessarily yeah. reflective of but, yeah, it, it is local no, district polling you don't want to push it yeah. too hard but an interesting thing there getting to imagine we were pushed into a provincial election the provincial NDP it's, it's and we have a big balanced budget with big surplus. Yeah. Economy's doing well, low unemployment. You know, uh, in terms of the macroeconomic framework to go into an election, that's pretty Yeah, and also bad. like a big scandal unfolding that seems to mostly implicate <laughs> the other party. So uh, it's like pretty good given, ground. Given that, considered. Uh, you could... It wouldn't be crazy to imagine the BC NDP deciding, you know what, rather than mess around with committees of the whole, we're just gonna we're just gonna go for it. But yeah. but the wild card in that election <laughs> remains how voters view the Greens. Yeah, um, because the Greens got a historically high uh, number of seats in the legislature, yeah. historically high amount of support. So if that collapses in favor of, say, Liberals. Um, who are re- the, the sheeps are returning to their flock because you know yeah. or you they're, have NDP they're not voters. tired of yeah. the Kirstie Clark government anymore. I, I think that represents a real wild card in terms of how heavily yeah. um, the liberals may. Well, may green voters, who, green voters for left of center, have like they could look at the BC NDP government and say ah sightsee and be really mad, and they could look at the Greens and say ah voting no on card check and also be really mad. So it is kind of like. Who knows, right? It would, yeah. The dynamics of that would be complicated. We're going to have to talk card check one day. With the BC Greens won three seats in the legislature in the last election. And yeah, some of it was disaffected. BC Liberals just didn't like Christy Clark anymore. Yeah. And so it, I think you're right that it is a wild card. One thing I'd note is that they are, they're not in government. They're not a coalition, but they are supporting the government. The, the Green leader, I, 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 Horgan. No, I'm sorry. Oh, uh, sorry, Weaver. Yes. Uh, Weaver. Uh, nice one. <laughs> he, this is this is touching him on the, the a big issue locally is a housing tax, a, a speculation tax. Yeah. And uh, you know, Weaver has said, this, "I hate this tax." First thing I want to do is get rid of this thing. And then the reporter's like, "Yeah, but you voted for it." <laughs> yes, I voted for it, but I want to get rid of it. And that you know that yeah. that is a difficult thing to hold in your head at the same time. Yeah. Those two things. That's what happens when you're. Supporting the government side. Yeah. And the is stuff it, they've done on housing, the NDP government actually does seem to have been genuinely fairly popular. Like, it's not going to be an anchor for them. I, 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 I don't think it's going to lose them a lot of votes where yeah. they care. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put there's, it. There's, in the media, and yeah. uh, you, you hear a lot about it because they tend to talk a lot to people who have $3 million houses. Sure. Um, and those people it blows were, my mind they win Point Grey. 
right? Yeah, David Eby, who the attorney general, uh, was, uh, you know, very Tony riding. Uh, that might be a bit of a challenge for him to Yeah, no, famously, Christy Clark lost that scene as well. Uh, yeah, to him, so yeah. that would be quite funny if uh, that, he was, I think, pretty, wide, I, like, I personally don't know the interior dynamics of the BC government that well, but he seems to be be kind of the number two. He's in that Minister camp. of Planet Potentiary. He's yeah. he's all over the place. He's he's on uh, the insurance company ICBC. He's all over the, the money fraud laundering. and the money laundering yeah. and the BC lottery, and he's all over the housing tax thing. He was all over the uh, uh, the proportional representation re- referendum. Right, yeah. So yeah, uh, he has been uh, RIP. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Also, um, so, RIP to the uh, casino. <laughs> oh, the God. casino case as well. How frustrating yeah. is that? Hockey bags full of twenty dollar oh, bills. But, but don't worry, the whole thing's collapsed for some reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, he's um, certainly uh, a, a, a big minister in that government, but also in a, a riding that makes it a bit hard hard for him uh, yeah. in the future. We'll see what happens. Uh, so, I think that will probably do it for us this evening, Doctor Milligan. Thank you so much. Uh, if you prefer Kevin, I don't know. <laughs> Kevin's good. Yeah, well, Dr. Milligan, you've you earned the title. You get it. to use it. Uh, so we'll, we'll give you the honor of doing our beer review this week. What did it, what did Chen give you there? Uh, I had oh I didn't even finish it yet. Uh, the Pale Ale. Um, Project Pale Ale. Project Pale Ale. It was uh, good. It was uh, like any good Pale Ale. It was kind of light on the uh, on the palate, but uh, you know just that right touch of bitterness, which makes. A good ale go down nicely, and that's from Ottawa's own Beyond the Pale, which was one of my one of my first loves when I came to Ottawa and got into craft beer was uh, 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 Beyond Beyond the Pale, and they also made the one that Laurent is drinking, which yes. is Pink Fuzz, which is sort of like the that's Ottawa kind of mainstay, yeah. the Ottawa staple beer. So yeah. your choice your choice be- was between yeah. those two, and you you picked uh, a very solid one. So I've been happy with it. Perfect. So that, once again, will do it for us this evening. Dr. Milligan, thank you so again so much for joining us. It's been really fun. Uh, you're welcome back anytime. My great pleasure. Next and time you're in snowy, snowy Ottawa. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> and with that, will do it for us. So have a good night, everyone. Bye-bye. Very good.